From the Third Coast International Audio Festival and Chicago Public Radio, I'm Gwen Maxi, and this is ReSound. Go ahead, caller, where is your emergency? Each week on ReSound, we bring you a remix of documentaries, narratives, essays, music, found sounds, sound bites, and audio flotsam and jetsam we find where no one else is looking. Today, we reach down under to bring you two stories from Australia, including a sound portrait of a chaotic 911 emergency call center. In Australia, you dial 000. And we bring you the tale of a town called Townsville, the death of a teenager and its controversial aftermath. Stay with us. Despite its small, rural-sounding name, Townsville is Australia's largest tropical city. But nothing, not size or location, guarantees a city can bypass certain universal problems, like racism. And it was here three years ago that the death of an Aboriginal teenager at the hands of a white teenager sent waves through the seaside community. Producer Claudia Toronto went to Townsville to find out what happened on the night of this incident and how events unfolded thereafter in her documentary, A Tale of Two Townsvilles. There's a level of response by the police which would be absolutely unacceptable if you had a son or a daughter who was walking home from school and they were run over and killed and the level of investigation either didn't occur or was at such a a primary sort of level, you'd be incensed, there'd be outrage if it happened to a white person in Sydney. Three years ago in Townsville, a death occurred that's caused waves through black-white relations in the town and has raised serious questions about the administration of justice. It's also had a big effect on the lives of a handful of families, some young people and a private investigator. On the 6th of June 2003, Monica Peirano held a birthday party. Her mother, Linda Davis, was keeping an eye on proceedings when 15-year-old Errol Wiles and his mates turned up on their bikes outside the house. It was her 17th birthday and there was, she was inviting lots of friends from school. People were drinking and playing music and gradually becoming noisier. The numbers were building up. And, um, yeah, I just um, had a look at what was happening every now and then and I was pretty happy with how things were going. It was a pretty big party. There was, a, I'd, I'd say, 50 or 60 people there in Monica's backyard and the granny flat and that, so it was very crowded. One of my, my little brother's best friend was out on the road and he was talking to a girl just that he'd just met and um, a group of kids rode past and the girl that my brother's mate was talking to just yelled, yelled out some, some comments to them because I think like, a couple of kids in the group were black and and the, the white kids were those wigger sort of types, I guess. What does that mean? Um, white kids that try to be black. Well, we just rocked up at the party and there was a bit of an argument between us and the people having the party. Someone was swearing at Errol and Maddie Lampton and Maddie Lampton and a girl was having an argument. I found out by talking to the young people that one of the young women out on the footpath 
had said to the boys on bikes to F off your black seas. And when um, the young fellow from our party defended her, then the young boys on bikes wanted to fight him. I called the police because um, things were looking bad. And um, after the police came, they, they disappeared for some time. And then later in the night, people yelled out, they're coming back, they're coming back. And I looked out the window and saw that indeed they were back, circling around on their bikes. And I went to call the police again. Because by this time there were a lot of people on the footpath. I had asked them all to leave and I'd poured alcohol down the sink. I'd said there's been enough drinking, enough stupidity here, had enough trouble. I'd told the girl that made the racist remark that she wasn't welcome, grabbed her by the scruff of the neck, actually. Um, we just went to our friend's place around the corner. And then we was walking back past the party to go home. And then we seen the car pull out. And then was just pulled up beside us, sort of, in the middle of the intersection. And me and Narrell and Maddie Lampton rode up to it just to see who was in there. And then it just started taking off slowly, and when we was riding up, it just kept taking off slowly. I saw this car pull up at the intersection, but then it uh, stopped and reversed back quickly. And then it went forwards very quickly towards one of the boys on bikes. Then it reversed backwards out of my view. And there were noises of a um, car hitting metal. And there was a lot of shouting, he's trying to hit them, he's trying to hit them. He was aiming the car at young Bert Summers and then reversing back into the group of bicycles. He appeared to be trying to hit them. We just heard it screeching in the reverse mode and it just hit me and Muddy Lampton's bikes. Clipped our back wheels and knocked us into the gutter and then it just took off again and then it stopped and it skidded again, reversed back and hit Errol. The car took off and we all ran over to see if he was okay and I rang the ambulance. And on his way back, he's hit a kid on a bike. He didn't mean to, though. I'm sure he didn't mean to. Has he told you that? Yeah, yeah. Well, I know his sister. I know his sister from school and I knew him from parties and on the bus and that sort of thing. And he's not the kind of guy. And so everyone thought it was odd that he would hit the kid, but he, you know, he hit him and the kid's fallen off his bike and wasn't wearing a helmet and hit the gutter. Some kids were screaming and rushing back into the flat to, to just not face it, the, the horror that they'd seen. Um, they'd seen the car run over him twice, some of them said. And um, very distraught young people feel, lots of them felt that it was their fault. Errol's companions felt that it was their fault for wanting to fight and um, one of the party goers uh, felt that he was responsible because he could have pulled Errol out of the way. He was very close to where Errol was on his bike. There was lots of crying and uh, trying to keep Errol going because he was still alive at that time. He was still breathing. But there was too much blood coming out of his, the back of his head to, to survive it. No one could think straight because everyone was drunk and just something hits you like that, you just go, oh, people are trying to talk about it, but... Everyone, everyone was crying, everyone was upset. The ambulance were there and the police were there and, um, yes, I, they interviewed lots of the young people. They seemed to be performing in a very professional manner, taking down as much information as they could and following through with it. So I thought that things were being investigated properly. 
two detectives came. That was the um, investigating um, officers for the case. They then officially told us what had happened. And um, we, we just couldn't believe it. It took them three days for them to come and officially tell us that our son was killed uh, in an incident. So I don't like to call it an accident. The police called it an accident? Yes. yes the police call it an accident, but I've, I've read all the statements and, and no way it was an accident. It was uh, very deliberate, I believe from witness statements that uh, his intention was to do harm or run somebody over. And uh, he eventually did that to my son. What did it feel like in the days afterwards? I don't know, just like it wasn't real. Trying to believe that it really happened. Did you have nightmares after it happened? Yeah, for a while. I couldn't sleep. I was up all night. Oh, that sort of mixture of shock and disbelief that it had happened. It was a horrible feeling. I was um, very upset. I actually went to the funeral. And um, I left a note, or I left a card for Errol anyway, for Errol and Sonia. And, um, and then I thought I'd better leave them alone. I felt some degree of responsibility for having the party, which could be it could have been perceived to be a redneck skinhead party or something like that, where people outside would say, because you're black, you can't be at this party. And um, I really had no say in that. It was um, just young people taking it upon themselves to decide who was welcome and who wasn't welcome. Mm. For a long time, we'd get around and we'd sort of try and talk about it, try and figure a few things out, but there's, there's not much any of us could, could have done to stop it or could have said, because Scott just got in and took off. I mean, you know. So um, I do remember one of the girls, the girl I said was getting a lift home. A couple of people found out that she was in the car and she got a lot of crap at school. I mean, she got threatened and and a lot of girls wanted to fight her or whatever, but... Aboriginal people? Yeah, in some Indigenous girls, yeah. My name's John Brooks and I was a friend of Errol Walls. What was the effect out on the streets of Townsville after that event? Everyone was looking, watching after their back. There was rumours going around that the skinheads were coming into town. It's going to run amok and that, so everyone was watching their back. Are there skinheads in Townsville? Yeah, lots. And what do they do? They just chase you, hit you. And if they catch you, they bash you and that. Has that happened to you? No, but one of my mates had got caught in that. And they bashed him up pretty bad. They just chase all the little black fellas around town. Because mainly I just hang around with all the older black fellas and they're just chasing all the young ones on the bikes. Are you Aboriginal? No. I just grew up with them my whole life. Errol Walls, Errol Walls Jr.'s father. I think it was about a week later after it happened. I had a couple of carloads of people come over to our place and ask if we want something done about it. 
by that I mean violence, I mean hurting, breaking bones, who knows what killing could have happened. And uh, I said, no, we'll handle things our way. We took it down the systems road of doing it the right way. And there you go, it just kept turning around and saying no, 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 no to us. What did you think when you heard the charge of dangerous driving? I actually did think it was a bit weak. I would have considered it manslaughter. I think if, if that would have happened to anyone else, anyone, it would have been a bit of a heavier charge. Um, I don't know. I think they did take into account that he's very young and that he is a nice kid. But just because you're nice, it doesn't mean that something's going to change a situation like that, I guess. What was your reaction when you heard what the charge was? Oh, I thought everybody around town thinks it was an accident, and it just wasn't. Dangerous driving causing death, which sounds like somebody hooning and just happened to run over some young Aboriginal fellow. And that wasn't the case from my viewpoint. And people's comments around town all seemed to indicate that it was the fault of the young fellows who were out on their bikes. If he was such a good boy, what was he doing out at night? And, uh, well... They're not asking that question about the white kids who were there. They were also out at night. And no one's suggesting that they deserve to die. So what do you think the charge should have been? Well, something that um, indicated intent. So that would be either manslaughter or murder. Now, murder to me sounds too strong because I think that young Hazenkamp was acting in anger and using the car as a weapon and a car is just far too dangerous a thing to be playing with. And I think a lot of the young people who have sided with Scott probably um, feel that they in anger could do something similar and that's part of the reason why they uh, decided to say poor Scott and um, have taken his side in the, in the whole affair. And they also feared for him uh, being in jail with lots of Indigenous people. They thought, oh, all of Errol's relatives will give him hell once he's in jail. Linda Davis, mother of Monica, who was the host of a teenage birthday party three years ago in Townsville. At that party, a 15-year-old Aboriginal boy, Errol Wiles, was run over and killed by 19-year-old Scott Hazenkamp. He was convicted of dangerous driving causing death and served 11 weeks in jail and then 12 months at a prison work farm. Errol's parents spent a frustrating year trying to appeal the conviction trying unsuccessfully to get documents under freedom of information and writing to every politician they could think of. Then along came Sydney-based private investigator Ian James. Around about December 2004, I saw in the newspaper an article about the death of an Aboriginal man in custody on Palm Island, Cameron Dimaggi. And just reading the paper and my general knowledge of these sorts of issues, I figured that possibly... There was going to be some sort of a cover-up and I thought that maybe I could perhaps help the islanders to protect themselves against the normal things that happen after death in custody. I work across a range of half a dozen disciplines, psychology, forensic reconstruction, I gather evidence. Um, I'm a professional complainant to the police and to ASIC and over the years for me to succeed in the sort of work that I do, which is a lot 
to do with crimes and fraud. What I have to do is use all of those disciplines. So I figured that on a non-paid basis, I probably could provide some external input that would be helpful to people in framing the way they were going to mount their defence or try to ensure that justice was done. So I contacted a lady in Darwin, Barbara Nassia, and I asked her if she could get me an invitation to go to Palm Island. She said that she would, but asked that if I would see a relative of hers in Townsville, Errol Wiles. So I agreed that in the process of going to Palm, I was happy to meet him and talk to him. I've never met a person like him before. Um, he sort of breezed in and bang, bang, bang. He took all the information and all our paperwork that we were compiling at the time, the FOIs, the witness statements, all the uh, committals, the sentencing. He went through the whole lot and he um, said he, he'd, he'd uh, take, it on, take the case on and, and help us. So I then spent probably more than six months in collating and cr chronologically putting everything into order, reconstructing the events with a view to creating a brief that a lawyer could look at quickly on a, no on a pro bono, bono basis and make the decision whether there was some grounds that could be followed to have the perpetrator charged with a more serious offence. Uh, one day I was out on the footpath pulling out weeds as I often do, and um, I saw this fellow wearing Sydney clothes, <laughs> long pants in the tropics, and he was with an Aboriginal man, and I thought, are they selling religion at first? But then uh, I saw them looking at the spot where Errol had been killed, so I thought, oh, that must be Errol's dad. So I went over and introduced myself and uh, shook hands with Errol and... Um, I was able to say, oh, I'm sorry about what happened. I think really no words occurred. They just, everybody's tears came to everybody's eyes. And we just stood there for a moment when there was a really human interchange of great empathy and sympathy. A mother, a father and me just simply being there. It was quite a really moving experience. What are the problems with the way the case was run and investigated by the police? I collated the witness statements there were 54 people at the particular event. I ascertained that 17 of these people had actually witnessed uh, Errol Wiles being run over deliberately. He then reversed straight towards Errol, really fast. The car was coming straight for him. the Berliner, reversing directly at where he was standing. And then it reversed back towards I've Errol. I've seen the Berliner change direction again and turn left towards the boy. Scott reversed straight into him. He was chasing the boys on bikes. It looked like the boys were trying to get the out of the way. The car reversed straight into the kid with his bike. It was so fast. Now, I had no idea who was driving the car or who was in the car, but some of the party goers um, did know the names of the people in the car, and they provided those names to the police. And the police started making lots of phone calls, and uh, one um, young policeman on the footpath told me that um, they'd located the driver out at Nome, which is just on the outskirts of Townsville, not very far away, really. And this happened how soon after the event? Oh, perhaps 15, 20 minutes after. I'm not sure, maybe half an hour after. The fact that Hassan Camp wasn't found until allegedly 6 in the morning when the incident occurred at about 2 in the morning 
and that that was outside the period at which he could be charged and convicted and face 14 years imprisonment if he had drink in his system was fairly absurd to an outsider when you consider that Townsville is a fairly small town. He lived 15 minutes from the scene. Uh, his parents were listed in the telephone book. Um, he was known to some of the officers who were there at the time to suggest that they couldn't find him in a small town for four hours. Just beggared belief. And there are many, many similar instances like this. The pathologist produced a report which did not state the cause of death accurately. The pathologist referred to a set of injuries, and in fact there were two separate sets of injuries, either or both capable of causing death. I don't know of any other example where a person hits someone and runs in front of 30-odd witnesses and 17 who saw the actual contact and isn't charged by the police. My understanding was that uh, in this society it's regarded as a pretty severe sort of a crime to hit and run. I do think that he didn't mean to do it. He, you know, didn't see the kid in time, didn't break in, in time, something like that. And because he'd been drinking, it probably made things a little bit worse. But um, the same time, I remember him saying back, or back, or way back then, he was saying I was also doing it so they wouldn't mob the car. I thought they were going to mob the car, and I was, you know, trying to scare him off so they wouldn't, you know, just attack me, sort of thing. I don't know about that. They were just riding around, just being cheeky. So I. I can't say that they would have um, mobbed his car or anything. Some people would ask, why was a 15-year-old out on his bike at one o'clock in the morning? Well, he had a curfew to be home before one. A lot of times, a lot of, lot of kids don't uh, listen sometimes and See, we've had this problem with the media too. They really come up with that sort of a question in their stories here in Townsville. The thing a lot of people seem to forget is the incident. They concentrate on blame this, blame that, blame that. And this is, uh, it hurt us a lot. Uh, he had a right to be on the streets, you know, whether, whether it was one o'clock in the morning or not. He had a right to, to come home. He had a right to his life. That was taken away from him. It's the wider community, you know, the, all those people that make those comments about what was he doing out and um, it was an accident, wasn't it? And they definitely prefer to think it was an accident. I think um, part of the psychology when it comes to racism is um, people not wanting to feel guilty. I think everybody, you know, these are really nice people really decent people that you'd think, what a great person, yet they say these things. And I think that it's some sort of um, avoiding, avoiding confronting something that's very upsetting or avoiding feeling guilty, not wanting to feel guilty. There's a, a young lady at the time called Jamie Lee Stanley who didn't come forward but eventually did go to the Aboriginal Legal Service in Townsville and she made a statement which was prepared by the then Principal Solicitor Kevin Rose. She swore that statement and that statement outlined the fact that she said that she'd been with young Errol who had now been killed some months before when Hassan Camp with, with a few friends had threatened Errol and said that I'm going to get you, I'm going to, you're dead, I'm going to kill you, words to that effect. 
that information was passed on to the investigating officer and sometime before sentence and after Hassan Camp had pled guilty to a traffic charge, a minor offence, the police were asked to go and, in, and interview Jamie Lee. Now, I wasn't at that interview. I had nothing to do with the case at this time. But I'm told that the police didn't, in fact, interview her. They started to turn the tape recorder off, accused her of being biased because she was a relative of Errol. And subsequently, the Crown or the DPP made the decision not to tender that information to the trial judge or to the court. When Jamie Lee had made that statement, this would have been a really ideal opportunity for the police to have realised that there might have been some race-hate element to this crime, and that was a major, a major problem. What do you think the reason was that he did this? Do you think it was because Errol is Aboriginal? Yeah. Plus, he's a skinhead too. That's probably be the main reason. I, I mean, I've had people say to me that they thought he was a skinhead. Yeah. He's got blonde hair and he's got blue eyes and he looks like that, I guess, but everyone's got that kind of an attitude. Now, there's always a kind of a division between white people and black people. There always is going to be. Would you say that, you know, young people are racist in Townsville? Um... Uh, yeah. Um, this is what I keep getting told at uni. <laughs> Everyone's telling me at uni that old Townsville's extremely racist and no, no, no. Um, but you are a young person in Townsville, so I'm a young what you know? In don't listen to what they tell you at uni. Tell me what you think. Um, yeah, I guess it, there's a, a lot of there's a lot of race difference. <laughs> Not violent racism, but there's racism. You know, people aren't out to kill each other, out to fight each other, but they're gonna sort of tease either race, you know, white people tease black people, black people tease white people, white people can't dance or whatever, you know, just silly things like that, I guess. I guess I'd have to say that there is racism in Townsville, but I'm pretty naive to it, to the pure hatred sort of stuff. Before Errol, there was another young Aboriginal girl who was run, hit and run as well. And... Um, I believe the driver only got a $750 fine and a, and a three or four months suspended sentence. And the girl died? The girl died, yes. Um, then after Errol, there was another, another hit and run here in Townsville in December 2003. Uh, it was a young 19-year-old uh, Torres Strait Island boy, I think. He was hit and run here in uh, Upper Ross River Road. And uh, another young boy that was hit by a truck and was left laying on the side of the road. There's some underlying stuff that goes on here in Townsville. And uh, I know a lot, it's a lot to do with racism. And so something needs to be done about it. We don't want another family to go through any heartache that, that, that we had to go through. Other people started telling me of similar types of things, other people being hit, struck by cars, investigations not being carried out. So I'm 
gradually building a register with the sort of information that one day maybe someone can utilise in terms of the authorities. Why do you do this work? I'm self-employed. I do a lot of work where I work on results only, uh, trying to recover money for people who've lost their life savings in fraud. And I basically live alone and I've got a lot of time on my hands. So I try to create some balance in my life by doing things that have probably more meaning for me than, than just the recovery of money. Historically, I've worked only as a bounty hunter. I didn't recover the goods or find the person. I didn't get paid. So that honed your skills to some extent. And I'm quite uh, challenged by investigating issues or matters after everybody else has given up. So I work as a principal, as a debt collector of last resort. And I see life as a bit of a challenge. Some people are calling for the case to be reopened, you know, because of the charge that was first laid. What do you think should happen? Oh, um, that's really hard to say. Scott's, I guess, one, one side of it is Scott's done his time. It's a bit, not so much unfair, but I guess unorthodox to bring it back and go through it again. But then again, um, a lot of people felt the case wasn't dealt with properly or that justice wasn't served properly, so I couldn't say. It's really hard. <laughs> Do you think justice was done? I think it was a pretty weak charge. I think he got away with a lot. I, I, I forgive him for what he's done. In my heart, I do forgive him for what he's done, uh, killing my son. But that doesn't stop him from taking the responsibilities for his actions. And how would he do that? I'm not too sure how, but I'll maybe go back to court, getting back to court and just owning up to what he's done and just saying something, why he done it. He's never uttered one word. He was told by his lawyers not to say anything. This week, Sydney law firm Levitt-Robinson are sending a submission to the Queensland Government detailing why the Errol Wiles case should be reopened. We invited the Queensland Police to participate in this program, but they declined. Tale of Two Townsville's was produced by Claudia Taranto for Street Stories, a series of social issue documentaries on Radio National in Australia. If you want to hear more Street Stories, go to thirdcoastfestival.org to find a link. While you're there, you can listen to hundreds of great documentaries from around the world as selected by the festival over the last six years. Also, you would not want to miss this most excellent opportunity to send us some mail. Send comments and questions to resound at thirdcoastfestival.org. 34 Our next story is part of a trilogy about emergency health. 
Its producer, Kyla Brettel, whose background was in film, won the Third Coast Festival Award for Best New Artist in 2002. When we talked to Kyla recently, she told us why she's particularly interested in how people relate to their bodies, taking them for granted until something goes wrong, and only then stopping to think about mortality, quality of life, or even why we're here in the first place. Her documentary is called Triple Zero Ambulance. It's about crisis, she said, and crisis is story, and story is what I work with. The greater the crisis, the more it tells us about ourselves. You can't really listen to this piece without being compelled by it. The suspense, the urgency, the heavy responsibility placed on the responders, these are all reasons why you're not going to want to be interrupted. These are also reasons why the piece is intense and at times graphic. Here's Kyla Brettel's documentary called Triple Zero Ambulance. Where's the emergency? Thank you. Go ahead, please. Where is your emergency? Ambulance, where is the emergency? Ambulance, where is your emergency? Ambulance, where is the emergency? Ambulance, where is your emergency? I'm just answering the dispatch. No worries, thanks. Ringwood, case 1275. It's for a 40-year-old male. Apparently he's had a spade flip up and has injured his eye. The eyeball is cut open and has fluid leaking from it. Code one single car, thanks. Uh, Ringwood, code one. Thank you. Carnegie, 55 and F. Carnegie. Sorry, Carnegie, it's case 1173. It's oh. very painful. Okay, look, I've got the ambulance organiser. Don't touch or irrigate or bandage the eye at all, all right? Oh, okay. And if, if, if it's still in, the, in your eye, don't no, pull it, it out. No, it came out. It came out. Yeah. All right, so just try and sit there and relax till we get there. We yeah, won't sure. be long at all. We're on the way now. Okay, now, I'm... 
Yeah. Sorry? I'm an off-duty fireman, so I should know better. Oh, okay. If you get worse in any way, call us back on Triple O. Yeah. So we're coming to the garage. Thank and you. That's, and that, you said it's out the back, did you? Yeah, oh, I'm, Just in, I'm in the backyard where the garage is. So the garage can't miss it. We won't be long. Thank you. Thanks. Bye-bye. You're standing in probably the most important room in Melbourne at the moment. When you consider that every day, now we're up to 430 events so far today. Before the days out, that'll be pushing 750, 800 emergency events in Melbourne and the district. And that's every day. And that's a lot whenever you sit down and think about it. An awful lot. It can be very stressful. Ambulance, where's your emergency? Thank you. Ambulance, where's your emergency? You know, that call goes beep in my ear and I've got 80 seconds, 90 seconds to get an ambulance actually on the way. I'm sorry, give me that address again, please. We basically ask the caller, first and foremost, is where is the emergency? I just can't catch the street number again. Just and the from street there, number. we ask yeah. a set questions in regard to what that specific event is. Okay, your phone, you're on a mobile phone, but unfortunately it's breaking up as you're speaking to The me. events are automatically directed to the correct dispatcher. Yeah, it's still breaking up. What's the street he name? or her job is to select the nearest available vehicle to send to the yeah, event. Yeah, that's a bit clearer now, wherever you are now. What's the street name? And then the ball's in the ambulance officers court to get to the scene in Hello. their required time frame after that. Yes, at the moment. Breathing. Yep. And uh, is there any serious bleeding? Uh, hang on a minute. Serious bleeding? Yes. Yeah, he's had a decent whack Okay, is the, the bleeding head. serious? Is it? How bad is it? Is the blood pumping out or just oozing out? Hang on a minute, I'll just check. Hello, how are you doing? Yeah, hi. Yeah, uh, I need to know, is the bleeding... <laughs> Will you please listen? Thanks, Rosebud. Sorry about that. 3WX to Baxter 2-0. Baxter, thanks. Case number is 1604 at 2122. 32-year-old male has been assaulted. The location of the offender is unknown. Unknown weapons. Patient has possibly dangerous injuries. Code 1, single car. Baxter received? Yeah, Baxter received. Sorry, Baxter. 3WX to event 7. Right. Yeah. Is the offender still nearby? No, probably well he's, gone. He's gone, and was he armed? Uh, was he armed in any way? Uh, no, not really enough. He had a baseball bat. So he, he, he was armed, he had a baseball armed. bat? Yep, armed. Okay, alright. Okay, yeah. They get so distraught 
that on occasions they don't know the address where they are, they can't tell you, they don't know their phone number. They, they scream down the phone, oh, I need an ambulance, and they hang up. Generally speaking, when it does happen like that, it is someone has collapsed or a child has drowned or something dramatic has happened that uh, has caused this all to occur. It can take quite some time and effort as a call taker to calm the caller and hopefully we can settle the scene considerably and have things happening to the patient's benefit prior to the ambulance crew arriving there so that the ambulance crew isn't walking in totally to a scene of panic. Ambulance, where's your emergency? No, two, three, five, two, nine. Go ahead, Paula. Where's your emergency? Just take a deep breath, sir. Tell me exactly what's happened. He's OD'd. He's OD'd, has he? Yeah, he's had heroin. OD'd. OK, is he conscious? No. Is he breathing? No. He's not breathing? No. Hello, you listen to me, sir? Is he violent? No, he's dead. His brother's violent. Hey? <laughs> he talked to his brother. Okay, thank you. Hey, buddy. Yeah, I just need to ask you a few questions. Yeah, right. Now, is he breathing normally? No. Every he's... now and again, he's going. And that's about it. He took heroin, did he? Yeah. Okay, and when did he take it? Oh, about five, not even a half minute ago. Now, how is he positioned? Well, I've got him. I've got him sitting up now. Okay, can we lay him onto his side? Yeah, I can do that. See, he's breathing, man. All right, so just on his side with no pillow. Still reckon he's going to need some narcan, but. Okay, is he on his side? Uh, yes, he's no, he's not. Wait up. Okay. Well, he's, he's a big, heavy guy. All righty, that's okay. Oh, what are you doing? I've got to get on his. You there? Okay, he's on his side. What I want you to do is to check how often he's taking a breath. Oh, okay. So you've taken one every 10, 20, 30 seconds. He's going blue, pretty much. Okay, that's that's too long. I'm going to tell you how to do mouth to mouth. No, I just got a breath there. It's not not often enough. We're going to have to help him out. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Place one hand on. You there? Fred, I've to see so 200. We spot him now to a 28-year-old male suspected overdose on heroin. Now gone to suspected cardiac arrest. Both cars are on a one. The winds are one five nine. 
Okay, have you got him off the bed? Okay, I've got him off the bed, he's on his back, flat, yeah. there's nothing under his head. Okay, now place one hand under the neck and the other on his forehead and tilt his head back. Okay. okay, one hand under his neck. Yes. One hand on his forehead. Yes, and tilt his head back. And tilt his head back. Okay, now I want you to look into his mouth, okay? Okay, look into his mouth. Okay, is there any vomit in the mouth? Is there any vomit? No, there's no vomit. Now place one hand under the neck and the other on the forehead. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And tilt the head back. Now. Pinch the nose closed yep. and completely cover his mouth with your and, mouth. Yeah, and, do, and breathe yep. We want you to force five deep breaths of air into his lungs, just like you're blowing up a big balloon. Yeah. Okay. And watch for his chest to rise with each breath, okay? Okay. Okay, do that and then come back to the phone. Okay. Yeah, no, he's hard beating hard now, man. Just feel it. No. No, it's not we need to know how often he's taking a breath, okay? Okay, he's taking a breath. Yeah, breath. Okay, tell me when he takes the next one. needs to be taking one breath every three to five seconds. Okay. Okay, you let me know how okay, he's going. Okay, the ambulance is here. Thank you very much. They've arrived, have they? I think so. Okay. Is it them? Okay, we're right. All right, no worries. I'll let you go. Thank you. Thank you very much. No worries. Bye. Bye. Uh, Windsor, we're clear of 1384. Um, patient refused further transport and treatment after we gave him some Narcan. Windsor, thanks for that. I'll head you back at 1545. I think I need a drink. <laughs> That's an arrest, so... Yeah. That's my first one for the day. So there, we've had a couple in a row. They've just come in, so I don't know what the other one's for. There's an example there, CPR in progress. Yeah, someone's collapsed. 70-year-old, he went to hospital. It's because a call ticker told him how to do the CPR until the ambulance crew got there. He was given every chance, and this bloke could come out of this. He'd live another 10, 15, 20 years. Happens. It's just a luck of the draw. It really is. It's like a roulette. What events that click into your ear here? It's just luck of the draw. Sorry, City, is that you calling? City, I'm sorry, still trouble with the radio here. It's case 1414. A one-month-old male child with a possible obstruction, presently still choking. She can head that way, uh, co-one single car. Oh. She's very, um, you know, I can hear the child crying, I can hear her upset about it, and, um, yeah, they're in unison with being upset here, but we'll be with them soon. The, it's crying well, it's getting good air in, so it's, it's obviously not going to be a big problem at the moment.
the city cars heading to her. You can see they've arrived now. Most of these events, the criteria is only 15 minutes, less than 15 minutes from the time that call comes in till we get there. And we meet that criteria on like 98% or something, 99% of the time. And that odd job where just the situation at that particular time dictated that the closest vehicle available was just that little bit How old is so she's not breathing at all. Is she conscious? Leverton, thank you, and Micah 9 on it. Micah 9. Leverton and Micah 9, it's case 1364. Uh, it's a 44-year-old female suspected cardiac arrest. Uh, if you could please head that way, both cars have one. Human Services rang up and said that they rang like a little boy to check up on him and his mum's on the couch and she's not conscious and she's not breathing. So I put in a job for cardiac arrest and then called him back. Hi. Hello, is the ambulance here? I've got an ambulance coming out to help your mum. Are you on your own there? Yes, except my next-door neighbour just came over. OK, all right. Did you see what happened? No. The ambulance is all organised to help you, OK? Yeah. I'm going to tell you how to do resuscitation, all right? Yeah. I want you to get her as close to the phone as possible. Do you want to get your neighbour to help you? Yeah. Do you want me to talk to your neighbour? Yeah. All right, you pop him on the phone, OK? Hello? Yeah, hi, it's the ambulance here. I'm going to tell you how to do resuscitation, all right? No, good to Rick has already said it. It already has. Has he been there on his own with her all day? No, he's just come out from school. OK. All right. Can you take him out the front? Yeah. All right. I want you just to take him out the front and wait for the ambulance, OK? OK. Are you going to be all right until we get there, or do you want us to stay on the phone? No, it's OK. Thanks very much. That's OK. We're not going to be long, all right? Oh, all right. Bye-bye. Maybe once a month you might get a bad, what do you call a bad job? You know the jobs, you can see them happening on the screen and a staff member might get up and walk out of the room. We have the quiet room out the back and if need be we have all the counselling thing all set up just in case. And occasionally you do because you're right there with them on occasions you know, and you, and you can't help but get caught up in the emotions of what's happening because you're listening to the the full distress of what's going on at the scene and, and you must be with them until that ambulance arrives. And it can be gut-wrenching having to listen to some of the stuff we listen to. You don't forget those jobs. You don't forget them. It was a SIDS case, which occurred right down on the peninsula. I'll just show you on the map here. It's a nice spot on here. I go down every now and again. As you can see, it's basically the last streets on the peninsula. 
and although we have crews down on the peninsula, at that particular time, it took 28 minutes to attend. And obviously you got a young baby, a very distraught mother, an equally distraught grandmother. And you're encouraging them, you're, you're telling them how to do CPR, how to keep this child viable until the AMAS arrives. But you're there with them, you're, you hear every scream and every sigh and in your mind you can only imagine what they look like, what they're doing as you're telling them to do the thing. And those looks, you can rest assured that that Elmas crew are killing themselves to get there as quick as they can. And that car will only go so fast and they will give it their all still when they get there. They will do move heaven and earth when they get there. And at one stage, the grandmother ran with the child up the street to try and meet the animals. And like, I knew that animals was still a good 10 minutes away at the time, and I had to tell him to get back. They were so distressed. Mm. And of course, the outcome was not good. And for 28 minutes, you have to deal with that. And even now, it's... Um, so, let's do what it is. Good job. That is the job. And I love it. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, love. Yeah. You just can't be on their doorstep. Have you ever spoken to the mother and the grandmother again? No. I've never spoken to any caller again. But I never forget them. And I'm sure too they don't forget my voice. I'm sure they don't. I'm sure in the back of their minds they relive the same way I relive situation when I bring it to mind and in their mind's eye they see this Irish bloke just that voice it's all I am is a voice it's all we all are Where's your emergency? Ambulance, where is the emergency? No worries. And what's your closest intersection to where you are? And the phone number you're calling from? Okay, and what's your phone number? How old is he? Christian name? Yep. How old yep. is she? How far away are you from him? Is this a suicide attempt? Okay, I've got the ambulance organised for you. Are you there by yourself? It's not chaos, it's just life. 
that's actually happening as we speak even. There's people collapsing, there's people crashing their cars, there are people giving birth at home. It doesn't stop. Perpetually, continually, ongoing, 24 hours a day, every day in the week, every week of the year. It just goes on, it's just life full stop. And we're involved to the greater degree with events that are somewhat unfortunate, or in the case of a childbirth, a wonderful event. People's lives. Triple Zero Ambulance was produced by Kyla Brettel for Radio I in Australia. Now I have to tell you a little something about how Kyla recorded this piece. She went to the emergency center with a slew of microphones set up in a variety of rooms, all recording at the same time. Confusing? Yes. But all those mics gave her lots of options, and when it came down to producing, she claims cutting it was like composing for an orchestra. I only mention all this because it's so easy to forget how much work goes into this kind of story, which is also why it's important to choose your medium wisely. So we leave you today with a few more thoughts from producer Kyla Brettel, who wrote to me in an email that radio is sensual and visceral, unlike words on a page. The way two sounds come together can send shivers up your spine. I like how you feel inside a piece of radio. It surrounds and envelops you, speaks to you personally. Also, she says, if I'm going to bust my butt for very little money, I want to do it my way. ReSound is a production of Chicago Public Radio and the Third Coast International Audio Festival. I'm Gwen Maxi. The program is produced by Roman Mars and curated by Johanna Zorn and Julie Shapiro of the Third Coast Festival. Our production intern is Delaney Hall. You can hear today's program at thirdcoastfestival.org, where you can also hear dozens of outstanding documentaries from around the world. Lead support for Third Coast Festival is provided by the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation, with additional funding from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, the National Endowment for the Arts, American Airlines, and Chicago's Navy Pier. Music for ReSound is provided by Reckless Records in Chicago. If you want to contact us, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at resound at thirdcoastfestival.org. Resound returns next week with more radio that you can't hear anywhere else unless you live everywhere else.